Well, time is fleeting. It is moving quickly. So, good morning. Good morning. And let me begin our time together before the Lord in in prayer. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We love you because you first loved us. We love your word because it is perfect. It is complete. And we know it is always profitable for us. Thank you for the clarity that you have provided for us. And let that be our aim today. And to know you and to know your goodness, to know your work in us. We praise you for the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and him saving us sinners. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you here this morning. It's, it's a blessing. and uh, We're continuing in our study of Philippians. If this is your first time joining us, thank you for coming. And, but we're continuing in Paul's strong words for us, the, the infallible Word of God for us today. Um, I hope that you're all awake and ready this morning because we're going to be moving all over the place in the Bible. Therefore, I'm going to take our time. I'm going to take my time and I'm going to be sticking pretty strict to my notes so I don't veer off because there is a ton here in just this little section. We've got a lot to get through and Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 3 today and then next week Marshall will lead you lead us into chapter 4. Has this been profitable for you all, our study of Philippians? I hope that it has. But this here that we're going to be in today, it's a, it's a really cool section. And toward the end, it's like a doxological, theological, miniature explosion that we have. And it should persist in our minds a little while, and, and even beyond that, into eternity. Paul gives us practical examples to see what to look for and what to look out for as well. God started out by showing us Paul's refined sanctification, his sanctified mindset in verses 8 through 11, what his mind revolves around and Christ and more Christ and it's always our Savior. Then in verses 12 through 16, God gives us Paul's actions, his sanctified doing in a sense, if you will. It's the rubber meeting the road and his pressing on. Practical steps he takes in pursuing Christ for all that he is worth. And now we turn the corner in the race With all of that not forgotten, but alongside of and with a continuation, God gives us examples, descriptions of real people that we can know and that we can look for, specifics in mind. It all flows for us like God knew what He was doing when He wrote it for us. Well, if you're not there already, turn in Philippians 3. Today's section will be in Verses 17 through 21. However, 
I want to back it up just a little bit and read the chunk that goes alongside of it, beginning in verse 7. Like I said, there, there will be a lot of reading today. <laughs> but verse 7, the Word of God says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, think this, think this way. And if in anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. Here we are today in verse 17. Brothers, join in following my example. And look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even crying, as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory is in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by His working through, which He is able to even subject all things to Himself. Amen. Well, He begins in verse 17. He says, Brothers, join in following My example and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So our first point, if you're taking notes, our first point is few practical examples. The few practical examples. Obviously, Christ is our supreme, our perfect example on how the Scriptures are applied in, in life perfectly. And as the supreme being, that makes sense. But take a step back and just look at Paul's statement here. Follow my example. Follow my example. It reminds me of in the book of Numbers uh, when Paul, or sorry, when Moses had to write, I'm the most humble in all the land, right? Well, it's just the truest humility, truest form of humility for Paul to say that. And it's God's word, so Paul would have no argument against it, obviously. In a sense, he says, hey, look at my life. I will let you in. Do you have any questions, please? Paul's giving us a, a broken down, a, he's showing us a flawed way to follow Christ, to follow him well as a sinner. The humility exemplified for us. 
And his example was written down. He went through it already in verses 8 through 16. 7 and through 16. And he says, oh, and, and by the way, and, and look for those. Look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Well, the those and the us here in the text would be Paul. It would be Timothy. It would be Epaphroditus. In the first chapter, verse 1, it would be the elders and it would be the deacons as well. This is not a conclusive list, obviously. I'm sure there are others as examples. But at a minimum, it's all of these. And so Paul is saying for them to look. And to look here is to fix one's eyes upon. In Luke eleven thirty five, it's translated as to watch out. It has a sense of urgency or importance tied to it. So with practical examples, or the few practical examples as the heading here, what that looks like here at PBC is to look at, to spend time with, to pattern our lives after the elders and after us deacons and their wives. At least, at a minimum, I mean, I can think of several, many other examples on top of those, but at a minimum, that's at least what he's talking about. And not just one, not just one, Paul includes himself, and he also, that's why he also includes others as well. Because when you follow one example, you, you do, you exemplify the good, you follow the good, but there's also some bad. Not everybody's, sorry, not anybody is perfect, right? So the more you follow, the more you multiply the good and the bad alongside of it. So that's why we need, we must have as many in our lives, we must replicate as many good practical examples to follow Christ as we can. As I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, you are the company that you keep. There's a whole lot of truth there. And so the the pattern of these men and and their wives that we are to strive for, turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. God gives us an example. He specifies exactly what they are to strive for and, and to look like. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It is a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to much wine or pugnacious, but considerable. Sorry, considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach. And the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, 
but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own households well. For those who served well as deacons obtained for themselves a high standing and a great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What a humble and sobering reminder for us all. And as these men in one of these offices and and their wives and those striving after those qualities as well, always pressing as, the, as ones that should be imitated. Paul told them to look for us, to, to look at us. And it doesn't stop once you're in one of those offices. We are to look as well. We are to keep their company, to grow other men and, and other women, to drive hard, to, to press on after Christ, asking practical questions, asking hard questions of each other and about each other to grow. So these are the the few examples, the few practical examples and what God has told us to do in that and to looking at them and to looking for them and to pattern our lives after them. There's no false humility here. Paul says, look at my life and look at others. He's not passing anything here on. He's saying, look at my life, but also look at these as well. Not only does it show us how practically to follow Christ, but also it forms a a, a sense of accountability for yourself as well. Hey, others are looking at my life as they are supposed to be. I need to be pressing hard and being diligent in my study of the Word, figuring these hard things out that the Word has to say. So those are the heading, the few practical examples and and what to look for in, in them. And next we would have the many destructive examples. The many destructive examples in verse 18. Verse 18 in Philippians, he says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even crying, as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now three things immediately stuck out to me when I, when I saw this verse. And I hope they did for you as well. If not, that's okay. But three things for sure stuck out is the often, when he says the often, the crying, and the cross. Often crying and the cross. In regard to often, I think of examples elsewhere in, the, in other books, other texts, that that is, in a sense, in Paul's writing, that is the majority that takes up uh, time in the Scriptures, takes up space in the Scriptures as Paul is, adjusting, or Paul is addressing issues and, and error, and often he calls them out by name. So, I can't imagine if he, if he does that in the Scriptures, in my opinion, often. I can't imagine what often would look like in real life, in person, what Paul did specifically. 
And it, and it brings me, it brings to mind how often do we warn or do we tell each other of these things? Well, long ago, someone loved my wife enough to pull her aside and warn her of a teacher that we were both fond of. Deborah had given her, she's not here so we can speak of her, that's pastor's rule, right? No, we love her, and, and Deborah, she had given my wife some specific red flags that Mark Driscoll was displaying. Shortly after, he became disqualified. Shortly after, Deborah warned my wife, he became disqualified of that office that he held. Her act of love kept us on the solid path, kept us in solid doctrine. So we must be loving by warning each other. Then the crying. This is, this is compounded onto those loving acts. The crying here. This is a show of love. In a sense, he's showing the Philippians how much he loves them. But I think more so, what he's driving at is Paul's love for the many here in the, in the text. The many. Those tears are, are shed over the enemies. Christ tells us to love our enemies. And this is one of the ways Paul shows us how to do that specifically. And, and they were, these were probably ones that Paul had labored over their souls. These are probably ones that Paul had labored with specifically. There was much time spent with here, spent with them. And now tears, tears of pain. We can almost hear the, the pain in the next few words. These are the many destructive examples. They, they walk as enemies of the cross. Now the, the cross stuck out to me because it didn't say enemies of Christ. Although that they are absolutely enemies of, of Christ. But it specifically said enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul gives us a, de, a description of, of those in verse 19. Whose end is destruction. Whose end is destruction. Well, of course, they're enemies of the cross. 1 Corinthians tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Of course, they're enemies of the cross. It's foolishness to them. Their, their God, he goes on, their God is their stomach. They have a different God. They're having no problem pleasing and, and serving their God as their stomach. Now, stomach here would relate to uh, appetite or desires themselves, in a sense, their whole being. They are, there's no problem here. There's no contradiction. Why would I need a substitution or an atonement that the cross accomplished, my God is well pleased. Think of all the other world religions. They all have a spot for God. They all have a spot for Christ or Messiah. Even Jesus. The Muslims, they don't get offended when you talk about Jesus. He's very prominent in, in their writings, in their books. Mormons and, and Catholics, they've all got a spot for him. But the cross and its reality 
is what separates all of it. That is, that is why they have made themselves enemies of the cross. The cross and what it stands for. What it accomplished in full. Complete atonement. Definite atonement. In, in John 19.30, it is finished. He didn't say, here I started it. Here you go. It's on to you now. He didn't say, you good? You good? You got it? No, he says, it is finished. No one else says that. And they all hate it because it's foolishness to them. And those, he goes on, he says, glorying in or praising in their shame. These are the things that Paul calls rubbish. He calls it dung, as a nice way of putting it. Trash in verse 8 is what he, he calls these things. And that's what they're glorying in. And of course, Paul is crying over them because he understands that their destruction, it says their end is destruction, that is hell, that is eternal punishment for all eternity. He loves them and he warns them and he's crying because he understands that that's where he was headed if, and all of us were headed if God had not intervened. And so Paul warns them. He tells them, I'm sure. He goes on in verse 19 to their, what I believe is their culmination. What it's all cracked up to be in a sense. And it is their setting their minds setting their thoughts on the earthly things. This is a, a deliberate act. This is, intentional. This is a, an intentional thing. Destructive examples, they have their devotion in earthly things. They're all consumed in and with the world and the things of it. And sometimes it's hard because the most destructive, they're shrouded in religion. Those Judaizers, they looked at awful, they looked awful religious to many. Think carefully about it. These are the ones that would say that Yahweh is king. These are the ones that also would say Jesus is Lord. But think critically about it. Think discerningly about it. That's why God calls us to all discernment in, in uh, chapter 1. Do they push you to want to know Christ? To want to know the Bible? Or are they pushing their convictions or, or their laws on you? That's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. It's shrouded in hypocrisy. The worst offense, one of the worst offenses to God, we're learning a, an awful lot about that in Galatians in our time together. And we need to check our own hearts and our own lives often because we all know and we've all seen huge examples of hypocrites and we need to ensure that that's the furthest thing from our own lives as well. Because I assure you that Satan is pushing hard to get into these four walls of PBC. Not that we're the only Solid church, but we are a solid church. And so Satan is absolutely trying his hardest. And so that's why we must warn often of doctrine, false doctrine. And, 
And we must give solid doctrine to each other. Solid doctrine produces trials, which bring about perseverance, which bring about proven character. Marshall helped us out at the men's retreat. That's all found in, in Romans 5. That's the, that's the example God gives us there. Which drives us to our next point and where I want to spend the, the bulk of our time together. This would be our practical examples mindset. Our practical examples mindset. This is where Paul and the mature that are in Christ, that's where they spend their days. That's where they spend their time focusing and refining. And it's interesting how God boils it all down for us. He compares these two examples for us. He simplifies it for us in a way. He goes through different categories, that these categories of, of the people, of all people, these things that, that develop and that frame and that would motivate a person, what controls their mind. And that are these three things, their destination, their God, and their glory. Their destination, their God, and their glory is what controls people's minds, whether believer or, or not. Their end for the unbeliever, found in verse 19, is destruction. But the believer, in verse 20, we have no end, but we belong in heaven where our citizenship is. That is where our citizenship is in verse 20, is in heaven. Which citizenship here is an interesting word. It's only used here in, in this text, in the New Testament. And, and it stands for the constitution of a commonwealth, a form of government and its laws by which it's, it is administered. Or in another way, we are under heaven's rule. That drives us, that controls us. An unbeliever belongs here on this earth, but we don't belong here. Heaven, heaven governs everything about us. So what does that mean? That's, that's a cute saying, but what, is, what does that mean? Well, today you're free to move about, assuming that we're all U.S. citizens, you're free to move about the, most of the known world, but no matter how much you travel, no matter how much you study about other places, the U.S. has shaped you. It has molded you. It will always have the underlying, the basic layer of you and your thought and, and your actions. Well, this is heaven for us as believers. I love this country. I think it's, it's the greatest, the coolest, the, the most beautiful place that there is on the face of the earth. I truly do. But I don't belong here. I live by its laws. But ultimately, heaven is what shapes my mind. It is what shapes my actions. It is what shapes every last bit of me. At the end of the day, this heaven, our home, turn with me to Revelation 21. I know you're all familiar with it, but we're going to get a description of our home and remind us, get us a little homesick, okay? Revelation 21. In verse 10, starting in verse 10. 
God tells us, the Word of God says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a, a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like precious stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall. It had 12 gates, and at those 12 gates, 12 angels. And the names have been written on those gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. And, the, and he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like pure glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone, and it goes on to describe the 12 foundation stones. I'll spare you my stumbling. But And the 12 gates, down in verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and one of the gates was a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be closed by day, for there will be no night there. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing defiled, and no one will practice, no one who, who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is. A real place. We will see that place one day. We belong there. We will be there and spend eternity there. And our eternity, and our eternity spent in that glorious place, it, it shapes our desires. But don't be fooled that the unbelievers end, it shapes theirs too as Christ has said that they've already received their reward, the one that they sought so desperately after. But our heaven causes us, he goes on in verse 20 of, of keep your hand in Revelation, but back in Philippians in verse 20, he goes on, he says, we eagerly wait for a Savior. Our reward, back to verse 14 in Philippians, our reward, our prize it is, it is ours. It's guaranteed as good as done. We're eagerly waiting. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. So what is this eagerly waiting? What is this 
business. Well, it's, it's like Revelation 19.7. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Us, the bride, has made ourselves ready. We have eagerly pressed patiently, and I encourage you with patiently in sanctification, Christ-likeness. Greater than that kid on Christmas morning. I'm sure you all know that one kid. I, I was that kid. My own mother here is a witness. I was that kid. But, but by the end of the morning, after Christmas morning is open and the packages and all the trash is all over the place, there's a certain degree of disappointment. For a couple of different reasons, maybe it's because there was something that was missed. Or perhaps it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Well, that's not going to be the case for the believer. Because our view of God can never be big enough for what's coming. Let me repeat that. Our view of God can never be big enough for what is coming, I assure you. The unbeliever's God is always self. There's no life there. It's, it's pitiful. And it should really break our hearts for the lost. But our God, our Savior, all-powerful, all-knowing, the Ancient of Days, the One from everlasting to everlasting, all-majesty. Please turn again with, in, with me in Revelation 1. Again, I know you know these, but, but we're going to continue. Revelation 1. This is a description of who we wait eagerly for. Revelation 1, beginning in uh, verse 12 and following. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars. And a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Of course, why, why wouldn't he, if you see that? And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. We'll go to 19. We'll continue this picture in chapter 19. Nineteen in verse 11. This picture of Christ. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh written, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is our God. The Lamb who was slain, the only one worthy of praise and worship, the only one who can raise himself from the dead. We eagerly wait because look who's coming. Look who's coming in all power and in all majesty. And as the unbeliever focuses on their God, we continue in Philippians, as, as the unbeliever focuses on their God and their own glory, we're focused on our God and His glory. Back in Philippians, verse 21, he says, Who will transform the body so that Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. This marks the end of the believer's struggle. Amen. I know some of us are jumping up and down more than others. Absolutely. But this is it. This is the new body. All things passed away and behold the new. 1 John 3.2 tells us, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manif manifest as yet what we will be. We know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. We will be like Christ, into, it says, conformity with the body of His glory. John tells us that ours will be like His in glory. This is the part of the, the positive motivation for the believer. To eagerly wait. Here's a description. Follow me in 1 Corinthians. I know, I'm sorry, but it's just a good description and, that God gives us. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start in verse 40. This is, this is the body, that, a description of the body that we are going to get, going to have in glory. Beginning in verse 40, he says, There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a corruptible body. It is raised an incorruptible body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there 
is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. This will be our body no longer in this flesh. We will be with Christ and we will be like Him. Amen. Marshall's got a grin from ear to ear right now. That is what God is telling us here. And just in case we have forgotten, he goes on, it's, it's all of him, it's all by him, it's all for him. He continues in verse 21, back in Philippians, by his working through, which he is able to even subject all things to himself. So in case you, like me, you're able to sit there and say with a little bit of pride, but do you know me? Do you know who I am? He reminds us of the power that we're dealing with. He's able to put all things under himself as he desires. Check Colossians 1, check John 1, check Genesis 1. These are all great places to start. He is sovereign. He is control of, in control of everything. And, and guess what? You and I, we're not outside of that realm of the everything. All things are under his control. And unlike their God, ours is able. And guess what? He is, he will because he's true to his word. And he has made promises to those who believe. So in conclusion, I know there was a lot here. God revealed much to us here in this text in just a few short verses. So let me streamline it just a little bit for us. God has given us good examples to follow, practical, and he's shown us those and described for us them. And, and then he's also described for us in culmination the, the lost and, and where their mind rests. The lost mind is consumed and, and stuck in the things of the world. As the believer, the mature ones, the ones that we are to follow and strive after in following Christ, being consumed with Christ, says, follow me as I follow Christ. They let the things of heaven govern and, and consume their minds. And it flows out of them into their lives and it affects their lives. You know the saying that uh, you are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? I think that's a, a direct contradiction because I don't know anybody who was more heavenly minded than Christ, more heavenly minded than Paul, and look, for, look at the, the things that they did for the kingdom, the things that they did for the lost. So I think that the more heavenly minded that we are, the more earthly good we are. 
I just wanted to correct that a little bit. Recently, I shared a systematic theology lesson by Kevin DeYoung with a, a few different people, and, and Isaiah had pointed out something uh, that he said in there. And I think it is timely. I think it was timely in God's providence, and I think it is absolutely ap- applicable today. He said, sometimes the application is simply to know God better and be in awe of Him. And let that be, let that in His reality be what shapes our thoughts and, and our lives today. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, You are good. You are worthy of all praise. And we thank You for the text that You've given us in our one and um, we thank you, praise you for that. We hope that it edifies and, and shapes our lives today, and we hope that, that your Spirit is doing that work. We praise you for that. We uh, pray for the next hour as Marshall brings us the Word, and we praise you for him and his life, and speak through him and, and help lead him as, as you always have in the past. And we praise you for that. Thank you for today. Thank you for this church and the body, and let us grow and edify one another and encourage each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.